Well, we're continuing today in our biblical investigation of the North Park Church mission statement, which I hope is really, really sinking in uh, by now, that we're making disciples of Jesus who worship God passionately, and I think there's been a little bit of that going on here this morning. Uh, we connect with each other in caring community and impact the world through word and deed. And our focus uh, at this point is on the worship component of that mission statement. Last week, our message was we worship in the sanctuary. And today we're going to be talking about the fact that we worship in our homes. And we're going to consider three, what I'm going to call ingredients that promote worship in our homes. We worship in our homes through learning. We worship in our homes through leadership. And we worship in our homes through legacy. Learning, leadership, and legacy. So let's dive in. Uh, ingredient number one, we worship in our homes through learning. Uh, I want to begin uh, by moving to Deuteronomy chapter 6, the first nine verses. Now contained within these verses is a, a short stretch of scripture known as the Shema. Uh, Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. And we're actually going to hear the word hear twice in this passage. So please follow along as I read. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. Who's the me? Well, the me is Moses. Commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Now, here's the question. Uh, what is the benefit of living according to the statutes and rules that God commands us to learn. Now, why? Well, we're told here that our days may be long. Now, we're not talking about the kind of long days here, like at the end of the day when you go, man, this was really a long day. We're talking about a long life, a life of longevity, and not just chronologically speaking, but a life that is blessed a life where you feel the favor of God. 
We're told that if we live according to these statutes and rules, that it may go well with us, that we might multiply greatly. These are the blessings of the Lord. In short, if we live our lives according to the statutes and the rules that God has laid out, we will be living with God's blessing. We will be having life and having life abundantly, as the Apostle John tells us in John chapter 10. You see, here's the thing. God's rules are not about random, harsh restrictions. They're about abundant life and blessing. Now, I want you to hold on to this phrase, statutes and rules, because we're going to see that a couple of times this morning. Uh, does anyone here have what you might call a, a life verse, you know, a theme verse, a favorite verse for your life, favorite little scripture passage? You know, I have such a verse that became very important to me back in 1988, and it's a verse that uh, I've held on to faithfully for a whole lot of years now. I want to share that verse, that verse with you. It comes from Ezra, chapter 7, verse 10. Now, let me give you a little bit of the, the context. Ezra was a man who served the Lord while in exile. He served in the court of a foreign pagan king. And we're told in chapter 7 that Ezra was a descendant of Aaron and was skilled in the law of Moses. So in this man, Ezra, we have a, the combination of both Aaron and Moses. And Ezra was selected by God for a very special role. So let me read this verse because it explains to us why Ezra was selected by God to serve in the way that he did. The verse reads like this. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So Moses taught God's statutes and rules. And now Ezra, a descendant of Aaron and skilled in the law of Moses, is going to be teaching the statutes and rules of God in Israel. So here's what we have. With Moses, the people of God were about to enter the promised land. And he explained to them, you must follow the statutes and rules of the Lord because if you do, things will go well for you. And now here we are with this man, Ezra, the Israelites who have been exiled are now returning to the promised land. And as they re-enter the promised land, God brings into leadership a man who is skilled in the law of Moses and who has dedicated himself to three things, studying the law of the Lord, living the law of the Lord, and teaching the law of the Lord. He knew his faith, he lived his faith, and he shared his faith. Now, that verse has been very special to me for 
a lot of years because it's guided me in some serious decision-making that I've had to do along the way. But the bigger picture is this. Uh, we have the people moving into the promised land and then the people moving again into the promised land. And there is this emphasis on the idea of learning the statutes and rules, the commandments of the Lord, that life may go well with you. Now, that verse 4, where you know, back to Deuteronomy chapter nine, uh, chapter 6, rather, when he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. This is the beginning of the Shema. Now, what practice or discipline is commanded in the Shema? Well, we're commanded to give total commitment to God. We're all in. We are to give love to God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our might. And you know, this verse is echoed in various places in Scripture. And sometimes it takes on a slightly different form. It talks about strength, loving God with all our might. But the idea here in the Shema is that we are to dedicate ourselves wholly to loving God and knowing God. This is going to require diligence. He says, teach your children diligently, consistency at all times, whatever you do, when you walk, when you talk, when you lie down, when you rise up, give everything to the Lord all the time. Very high visibility is to be given to the word of God in your home. The way that it's expressed in the Shema is that you are literally to tie these words onto your hands. You are to carry them as frontlets between your eyes. You are to post them on the doorpost of your house and on the gatepost to your house. And you know, in the world of uh, Orthodox Judaism, these practices are still literally carried out to this very day. Now, what's going on here? Why? Why is such an emphasis being placed? Well, it's so that our homes would be saturated with love for God and the knowledge of God. So that your children and their children and their children will grow up with a love for God and a knowledge of God. And God instituted this practice all the way back in the time of Moses. And it has traveled with the people of God all the way to this very moment. Now, let's take a peek in the New Testament at where we see the Shema show up yet again. I'm turning to Matthew chapter 22, beginning with verse 34. It says this, But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Okay, so who are the Sadducees and the Pharisees? 
Well, I'm not going to go into great detail, but these are two of the uh, leading, most influential groups uh, within the Hebrew people, within the, the people of God of that day. Uh, they were somewhat at odds with each other, similar in some ways to the way we might think of Democrats and Republicans today. But one thing that they had in common, they had a common enemy. And that common enemy was Jesus. Jesus was disrupting the status quo that they had control of. And so the Sadducees had come against Jesus and failed, I'm sure to the delight of the Pharisees. But now they were going to take a shot at Jesus And we're told here that one of the Pharisees, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Now, notice that he's not asking Jesus a question because he's trying to learn something. He's trying to test Jesus. Okay, parenthetical thought, word to the wise. Don't be testing Jesus. You're going to lose. You're going to fail this test. Okay, but nevertheless... Uh, That's what's taking place here. So what's the question that this man asked? He says, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Well, you know, the original expression of the law was the Ten Commandments. But over the centuries, these commandments have been multiplied into over 600 laws. And this man is asking Jesus, so which one is the top one? Suggesting, of course, that all of the others are not as important. You know, what he's looking for is for Jesus to make some kind of misstep, in which case these authority figures can pounce and discredit Jesus. Well, of course, Jesus doesn't fall for that. He simply summarizes the entire law. And he says this, He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Ring a bell? You know, what is Jesus doing here? He's quoting the Shema from all the way back to Moses. This is the first and the greatest commandment. Give God your everything. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. All of the law, meaning the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, and the words of the prophets, the rest of the Old Testament, that that is an exposition of the law, as well as the prophecies that the Messiah would be coming. So Jesus has taken all of the word of God in its entirety and reduced it down to two Two laws, a vertical comment, love God, a horizontal comment, love people. If you love God, you love people, you've covered all the bases. That's all that you really need to know. Now, why is Jesus reaching back to the Shema? Well, consider this. I think what Jesus is saying is that what used to be of paramount importance to God the Father continues to be of paramount importance to God the Father. 
You know, one of the attributes of God is that he is immutable. He never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So whatever was significant to God in the beginning is significant to God in the middle and will be significant to God in the end. God placed this commandment on his people as they were entering the promised land under the leadership of Moses. God reintroduced this commandment to the people as they re-entered the promised land under leaders such as Ezra. And now Jesus is reinforcing this command yet again uh, in the beginning of what we know of as the New Testament. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Now, this high-quality love, this high-quality knowledge of God doesn't happen by accident. It happens when we live it and teach it in our homes. We worship in our homes through learning. Second ingredient, we worship in our homes through leadership. Now, we're going to take a look at a couple of very different types of leaders that we find in Scripture. The first one is Joshua. Now, we're going to drop in to the end of Joshua's life, just before his death, and he's speaking to the people of God for the last time. And here's what he says, chapter 24, verse 14. He says, Now, therefore... Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. I think it's incredibly interesting that as Joshua is offering this pronouncement to the full nation of Israel, he closes it out by taking a look at his own home. Here are your options. You can chase after this. You can follow after that. But as for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. Now, who was Joshua? Well, lots of things that we could say. Let me just highlight a few. First of all, he was one of the 12 spies that went on that reconnaissance mission into the promised land to check it out. The people of God had wandered for 40 years, and they're, they're just across the river from the promised land, and they decide to send in uh, a team of people to check it out. One man from each of the 12 tribes, and Joshua was the one from his tribe. Now, many of you, I know, know this story. Uh, very diverse reports were brought back. Ten of the 12 said, hey, you know what? We can't take this land. The people that live there are too strong. In fact, they're big. 
In fact, we, we thought of ourselves as grasshoppers compared to them. But two of the spies said, hey, wait a minute. That all might be true, but we've been called by God to do this. And through the grace of God, we will prevail. So let's do this. Now, those two spies, one was Caleb and one was who? Joshua. So Joshua is sort of laying out a resume here early, early in his life of faithfulness, of reliability. Now, Joshua was the heir apparent to Moses. He was Moses' protege, his right-hand man, who was right there with Moses throughout many, many things over all those years of moving through the desert. And you might be aware of the fact that Moses uh, was not permitted to go into the promised land and actually passed away just before uh, the Israelites crossed over into the promised land. And with the death of Moses, Joshua stepped up into that leadership role. He was a leader, and his leadership is captured throughout the book of Joshua. Well, what do we see in the book of Joshua? Well, the main idea is this. The fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that the people of Israel would have this land to be their own. We see the successful entrance of God's people into the promised land. We see their conquest and scattering of the inhabitants of the land. And then we see the distribution of the land among the 12 tribes. Now, there's a closing statement in the book of Joshua that sort of wraps everything up quite nicely. Joshua 21, verse 45, it says this, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All had come to pass. All had come to pass. Now, Joshua was God's chosen leader for the establishment of the nation of Israel. But he was also God's leader in his home. Now, I've got to tell you, I find the, the opening chapter of Joshua a little bit amusing. You know, we have this case where Moses has, has died, and so God comes to Joshua and says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Moses. I mean, you don't get any bigger than Moses, right? Moses going up against Pharaoh. Moses on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments and tablets of stone. Moses leading his people for 40 years through the wilderness. Moses was so big that when they made the movie, they had to get Charlton Heston to play the part. Now, for those of you who are too young to know who Charlton Heston is, Google it. It's worth five minutes to check it out. So I'm kind of thinking when God speaks to Joshua, he says, Moses, my servant, is dead. You, you kind of feel like God might say, hey, Moses, Moses is dead. 
I have no idea what I'm going to do. Moses was my main man. How am I ever going to get these people into the promised land? Help me out, Joshua. I don't know where to go with this. It doesn't exactly read that way. It reads like this. Hey, Moses, my servant, is dead. So, Joshua, you take these people across the river. God doesn't miss a beat. Moses, as big as they come, but guess what? God is bigger. And Joshua is going to take the people into the promised land. But then God encourages Joshua. He says, be bold and courageous. And then a little bit later, he says, be bold and courageous. And a little bit later, he says, be bold and courageous. I feel like he's saying, Joshua, are you listening to me? Be bold and courageous. Now, why do you suppose God has to keep saying this to Joshua? I have a sneaky feeling that Joshua, being a mere human, wasn't all that bold and courageous. I have a feeling he was maybe shaking in his sandals. Like, I've got to follow Moses. Are you kidding me? But through the power of God, Joshua emerges as a great leader, leading the people of Israel and leading his own household in the ways of the Lord. Now, let's take a look at a very different type of leadership. We're going to meet a woman named Lydia. So I'm going to take you to Acts chapter 16, beginning with verse 13. It says this, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Okay, so who is the we? Well, we're talking about Paul and Silas who are on a missionary journey. And we're also talking about Luke. You know, Luke wrote the book of Acts, and Luke is referring in first person to we. So this is Paul and Silas and Luke and their entourage, and they're down at the riverside with this group of women who are conducting a prayer meeting. And as we read further, it says, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So here's the question. Who is this woman Lydia. Well, she's a woman who lives in Thyatira, which is a town in Asia Minor across the Aegean Sea from Athens. She's a seller of purple goods. So I guess she's a businesswoman, perhaps an entrepreneur. Perhaps she's even a manufacturer. Perhaps they make these purple goods there in her household. We're told she's a worshiper of God, even though she apparently hasn't yet heard the full story 
which she's about to get from Paul. And we're told that she was a learner as Paul opened her heart to receive the teaching of Paul. Now, we also find that she was the leader in her household. As we're told that uh, she paid attention, and after she was baptized, and her household as well. She set the tone for what was going on in her household, uh, not just for herself. Now, here's the thing. The household in this culture didn't really refer to a simple nuclear family living in a single-family dwelling. We're talking about a whole group of people, uh, multi-generations of families, as well as people who were attached to the family through business interests and other kinds of, of enterprise. So one can't say just how many people we're talking about, but we're finding that Lydia proved to be a leader, not just in her own life, but in the life of her household. So when we look at Lydia, when we look at Joshua, what we see are people that are making godly choices for themselves and for their households. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We worship in our homes through leadership. So a question that I might have for you today is this. Have you made that choice for your home, your household? Are you being that leader that is setting the spiritual tone for those with whom you live? Now, that brings me to ingredient number three. We worship in our homes through legacy. Now, the final person we're going to take a look at today is Timothy. I want to take you to 2 Timothy, uh, the first five verses of chapter 1. It says this, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So he says this to Timothy, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now, I'm sure, dwells in you as well. Now, the relationship between Paul and Timothy was similar to the relationship between Moses and Joshua. Timothy was Paul's protege, and he would follow Paul's footsteps as a key leader in the birth and the expansion of the Christian church. And Paul writes to Timothy, referring to him as my beloved child. Now, Timothy was not the biological child of Paul, but he was the spiritual child of Paul. 
Think of Paul as Timothy's spiritual father, Timothy as Paul's spiritual son. And so we're starting to get a look at this idea of generational faith, faith that moves in a family from person to person, from generation to generation, but also the spiritual influence that people might have with each other from generation to generation to generation. So what do we have here? We have a faith that became evident in the grandmother, Lois, that was passed to the mother, Eunice, that has made its way to a third generation, the son, Timothy. We actually have a little more information about Timothy's family life from Acts chapter 16, the first couple verses. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. So we find that Timothy was raised in a home by a Jewish mother, a Greek father, and at least the mother was a follower of Christ, having been influenced by her mother to become a follower of Christ. Generational leadership, spiritually and biologically. So I want to stay for just a moment on this idea of the generational dynamics uh, that happen within a family, within a household, as people really embrace commitment to Christ. So I'm going to take you to Acts chapter 2. The setting is that Peter has just preached the first Christian sermon. And at the close of that sermon, there's been a lot of conviction falling on the people who are hearing this message. And they come to the disciples and they say this, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The promise is for you and your children. Acts chapter 11, beginning with verse 12. Peter is speaking. And he's talking about a a, a group of people that have come to locate him and bring him to speak to their master. Peter says this, The Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. One more of these from Acts, back to chapter 16. Here's the scene. Paul and Silas have been imprisoned. And in the middle of the night, a miracle occurs. The doors to the cells fly open. We pick up the story with verse 27. 
When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. The generational dynamic that resides in the power of the gospel that moves from one generation to another to another. We worship in our homes through learning. We worship in our homes through leadership. We worship in our homes through legacy. Now, maybe your home is a Christian home, and you are a leader in your Christian home. If so, I encourage you to embrace the Shema, placing an emphasis for yourself and for those with whom you live such that you are committing all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your might to the love of God. Make sure, by the grace of God, that your home is a home of godly learning, that your home is a home of godly leadership, and that your home is a home that is building a legacy of faith that will pass from generation to generation to generation. But maybe that's not your home. Maybe you're in a home that has yet to fully embrace Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your Lord. Well, consider this. Consider this example of what we've just seen today, the generational dynamic. Brothers, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. He will declare a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Maybe today is the day that you or others in your home will repent of their sins and turn to Jesus. Here is the good news. Eternal life is within your reach. It's there for you. It's there for your household. Choose this day whom you will serve Respond this day to the offer of life 
that comes from Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I know that as a father, it gives me great joy and encouragement and satisfaction to know that as you have been flawlessly faithful to me, you will be flawlessly faithful to my children, my grandchildren, and their children. Father, there are a lot of families represented in this room today. Some of us know you well. Some of us maybe don't know you at all. But I would pray, Father, that even at this very moment that your spirit would move in all of us to encourage those of us who follow after you that we might step up and be the leaders that you've called us to be. And for those who have yet to receive you, make today be the day where you break through. As that mind of Lydia was open to receive the teaching of Paul, may minds be open today to receive the offer of salvation that comes from Jesus. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.